Well, good morning. It's nice to see all of you. We are in John chapter 11 this morning. So please join me in John 11, and we'd love to get a Bible in your hands if you don't have one. So raise your hand high, and we would love to get it to you. Feel free to keep it uh, if you would like, or leave it on your seat when you leave. Consider it a gift from Flagstaff Christian Fellowship to you when you get it, John 11. I do have two announcements before we get into the message this morning. Number one, men, mark your calendars. Chad just mentioned it a few moments ago. Saturday, November 6th. 8.30 a.m. to noon, I will be leading our men and teaching us on the topic of discipleship, but I expect that some of the ways that we'll be approaching discipleship from the Word of God will be unique and um, very helpful to you. So, so guys, come on out to that. Uh, Gary, Angel, and the team have got a great morning put together with food and the like, so, so mark your calendars. And then church, the very next day, Sunday, November 7th, we have our next covenant member meeting, 5 to 7 p.m., so please mark your calendars and uh, be there for that. Well, we are in John 11. We have moved into this final scene of Jesus' public, outward-facing ministry. John chapter 12 is a, is a hinge point in the gospel account, and then the remainder of the gospel is dedicated, or most of it is dedicated to a private conversation and teaching that Jesus gives to his disciples, often called the upper room discourse. So here in 11, we are moving into that next famous passage, the death of Lazarus, and this morning is a part one. Um, there's so many details in this text so many amazing things that Jesus says that some of the less obvious statements get overshadowed by Lazarus's resurrection. And so this morning, we're going to focus on some of those smaller details, which will help us then next week, Lord willing, to look at the resurrection of Lazarus. So if you're taking notes, the title this morning, the subtitle is The Glory of God and Suffering. And for the sake of context, I'm going to read the entirety of John chapter 11 to set God's word before us, pray, and then we'll, we'll get to work in the word. So if you would, look along with me. John 11, beginning in verse 1, God says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha, it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then, after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to, to stone you, and are you going to go there again? And Jesus answered in verse 9, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, 
because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two, two miles off, and many of the disciples had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Or many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord... If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Well, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here, and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Verse 39, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. And Jesus said to her, said to her Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, so that they may believe. That you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, 
his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests, the Pharisees, gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Well, that is John 11. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you that the whole of it, from every letter to every word to the entirety, is the pure, true, authoritative, inerrant, infallible, awesome, and delicious, valuable Word of God. And so we ask this morning that by your Spirit, you would let us see what we can't see, believe, and follow you, Lord Jesus. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer, all of God's people said, Amen. Well, as I said before, I read that very long section of, uh, of Scripture. Clearly, the resurrection of Lazarus, four days dead, dominates this story. The miracle of miracles that Jesus performs next to his own resurrection, which we'll get to at the end of the book. But for now, this is the major sign that Jesus gives and the sad and bitter irony is that the author of life gives life to one once dead. And because of that, the religious leaders want to put him to death for it. In fact, we'll find out in chapter 12 that the religious, religious leaders want to kill Lazarus also because he is now living proof that Jesus raises the, the dead. But it's what is said in the first 16 verses that we are confining our attention this morning. Our attention is focused on God's perceived silence. So there's a question for us. How do you make sense of God's perceived silence in the face of suffering and unanswered prayer? Because all of us have suffered, suffer, and will suffer. And all of us who know the Lord, and maybe you don't know the Lord, but you've prayed to the Lord, all of us have perceived that our prayers have gone unanswered, or at least not answered the ways that we have asked. How do you make sense of suffering at all? Well, God has spoken to us in his word, so he is not silent. And his voice in his word informs how God answers prayers, and it informs how we're to understanding suffering. And while prayer might not be answered when we ask or how we ask, if at all, from our perspective, but no prayer of God's people goes unanswered or unheard by God, 
God answers prayers unexpectedly and unlooked for ways as this passage reveals today. So as to get into it, we do have three points this morning. Here they are if you're taking notes. Point number one, we're going to look at the whole text, some parts of it, verses 11 to 16, Jesus and the unexpected love of God. Jesus and the unexpected love of God. That will take us into our second point, Jesus and the unexpected glory of God. And we will look at verses 3 through 6 for that. And then our time will end together in the third point, Jesus and the unexpected plan of suffering. Verses 14 and 15. Well, let's, let's jump right in. Number one, Jesus and the unexpected love of God. Look again at verses 11 to 16. Listen to them. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go again to Judea. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he had meant taking rest and sleep. So then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. As remarkable as the conclusion is to this story, many verses from now, Jesus literally and truly raises Lazarus from the dead. It is a resurrection. It's not a resuscitation. Four days dead. Miracle of miracles next to his own death and resurrection on the cross for our sins and resurrection from the grave for our justification. And we see here that Jesus raises Lazarus. Many believe, while at the same time the religious leaders plot to kill Jesus once again. And as remarkable as those truths are, which, Lord willing, we'll look at together next time, there are quick details in these first 16 verses that I find almost as counterintuitive and shocking as the resurrection story of Lazarus itself. Look at verse 3. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, He whom, what does it say? You love is ill. And you look down at verse 5. 
This is John, as narrator of the gospel account, inserting additional details. He says in verse 5, Now Jesus, do you see the word? Loved Martha and Mary and Lazarus. These two verses, 3 and 5, are the first moment in this gospel account in which Jesus is said to specifically love particular people. Now, of course, from the very beginning, that has been assumed throughout. We have John 3, 16, for God, for God so loved the world. But there the emphasis is on the Father's love for the world in the sending of his Son. What's unique about verses 3 and 5 is here, it is the first explicit mention that Jesus uniquely loves this family from Bethany, these sisters and brother. So that means that the love here is more than the saving love that we read of in John 3, 16. If you look at verse 11, Jesus, while talking to the disciples, when they get ready to go to Bethany, he refers to our friend Lazarus, our friend. So not just a friend of the disciples, but of Jesus personally. Jesus was friends with Lazarus. This is not mere acquaintance. It's not a generic way of calling someone your friend who you, who you barely know. This is an actual friend of Jesus. There is close bonds of affection between them. So, so, so Martha and Mary know of Jesus' love for them, know that he loves Lazarus, and they send the messenger in verse 3. John, the writer of the gospel, Make sure, that, make sure that we understand that Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. And here Jesus himself speaks of Lazarus as our friend. Jesus loves Lazarus in a unique and special way, not in a generic way, in a friendship, brotherhood type way. And this emphasis, this first mention of Christ specifically loving people, mentioned it twice in this gospel account, it's this emphasis that is subtle, that it, it, it colors, it's a drop of dye in the text that colors and emphasizes the reality of this gospel, which makes it all the more shocking. So the setup makes the death of Lazarus all the more mysterious and confusing. Jesus loves Lazarus. Lazarus is his close friend. Verse 6, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he went right to him, rushing along the way. Your Bible doesn't say that. What does your Bible say? Your Bible says, so he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. This is the exact opposite of what any of us would expect Jesus to do as we've seen him walking across these first 10 chapters of the Gospel of John. And even more so, when verse 6 begins with, so, when he heard Lazarus was ill, that word so can also be translated therefore. It indicates a conclusive purpose. Oh, my Close friend is ill, the one whom I love. Oh, because that's happening, I will stay here longer. It's a conclusive purpose. Jesus heard Lazarus was sick, was beckoned to come heal Lazarus, 
Therefore, Jesus stayed where he was. This appears to be the exact opposite of unique love. This appears to be the exact opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself, as Jesus teaches. This appears to be the exact opposite of the bonds of affection that friendship yields between Jesus and Lazarus. And then not to mention Lazarus dying, sick and dying, and his sisters and their emotional pain and sorrow of losing their brother. It appears as if Jesus is careless and indifferent, doesn't it? And even more, when you know the gospel accounts, is Jesus bound by time and distance for healing? No, he's not. He doesn't even need to utter a word. He can just heal from a distance. So there's, a, there's an irony here where, where there's this multi-day travel of the messenger to get Jesus, and then Jesus waits multiple days, and then there's the travel back. Jesus is not bound by time and space. For healing, he is the true God-man. Even without a word, he can heal Lazarus. So that makes it even more mysterious, more shocking, and perhaps even, if we're honest, suspicious. That not only does he not go deliberately to save his buddy, but he could have just healed him, and he did not. Jesus stayed where he was. Jesus did nothing. Jesus let Lazarus die. This is a stark contrast because we have been seeing these first 10 chapters, chapter after chapter, Jesus healing people and saving people who were strangers to him and outcasts to the society. So it's, it makes it then even more underscored we should be thinking, well, if Jesus is going to heal strangers and, and, and invalids by the pool and the blind man and, and more, and if he's going to go into Samaria and preach the gospel, if he's going to even take Nicodemus into a home and preach the gospel to Nicodemus, if, he, if he's healing and saving strangers, outcasts, and enemies, what about he whom he loves, his friend? And here's why we need to pause on this this morning. I think deep down, many of us, if not all of us, can relate to this episode. It can be easy to gloss over this first part because we know Lazarus is going to get raised. We know what's going to happen. But, but deep down, many of us can relate. We have requests offered up to the throne room of Jesus that are still outstanding with Jesus. The loved one is not yet saved. The sick one is not yet healed from sickness. Some of our prayers have been answered, but, but not in the way that we've asked. Not in the way that we've asked. And so in terms of identifying with people in this passage, we are far more Mary and Martha and Lazarus in this text than anyone else. And what we see here with Jesus is sometimes deep down we think that Jesus listens to other people, but not us. Jesus loves other people, but not us. Jesus cares about the suffering of other people, but not us. We hear about the answered prayers of salvation and deliverance from sickness of other people, but not us. We want to be good Christians and believe the Bible, and so we sort of pull ourselves up by the bootstraps of our heart to say, well, we know God is good, and we know the Father, Son, and Spirit do no wrong, 
but we still hurt, we still don't understand, and the, and the question is why? And so Jesus, this morning, gives us the answer. Uh, we began our service with Psalm 23. Psalm 23, the Jesus, Jesus the Good Shepherd, does, does Psalm 23 say that he leads us around the valley of the shadow of death? Where does he lead us? Through. And what do good shepherds do? They, they drive the flock. They lead the flock. So, so there's a deliberateness on behalf of God to lead his people through the valley of shadow of death on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So we're getting to the understanding of, of why suffering, which is the fundamental question that many ask and wrestle. It's the fancy call it theodicy of understanding the problem of evil in the world. Evil is a problem, and it's our fault. It should be a problem of good in the world because of God's grace. Can't say all there is to say, but we're confining our attention to Luke 11 to see, excuse me, John 11 to see how Jesus then answers these questions to console us and strengthen us that deep down we think that maybe he actually hears and cares for others, but not us. So point number two, Jesus and the unexpected glory of God. We know God is a good. We know the Father, Son, and Spirit <clears throat> do no wrong. We still hurt. So why does God allow pain and suffering, even ordain it? Point number two, Jesus and the unexpected glory of God. Look at verse four. But when Jesus heard it, what? Verse three, Lord, he whom you love is ill. When Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death, meaning it's not, its ultimate purpose is not for uh, eternal death, really. It is for the glory of God, Note that the death of Lazarus is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So here, sandwiched between verse 3 and verse 5, which speaks of Jesus' love for his friend, here in verse 4, Jesus declares to the disciples, they don't understand, but they just hear this double reference to glory. It's for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified. Refer last week to the message on the Trinity. Far from being callous, far from being indifferent, far from being uncaring or aloof, Jesus... This whole episode is for the glory of God. So that Jesus himself, the Son of God, might be glorified through it. The Father, the Son, the Spirit will be glorified in the person and work of Jesus. Chiefly through Jesus' death on the cross for our sins and resurrection. But right next to it, this miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. You see, Jesus' aim, the Father's aim, the Spirit's aim in all the actions of the triune God is that the hearts of his creation would be rightly calibrated and rightly oriented to give God the praise, honor, acclamation, adoration, and fame that is due to him alone. A bird is made to fly, a 
horse is made to run, a fish is made to swim, and people are made to revel in the glory of God. And that's why one definition of sin the Bible gives is for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Not just a standard that we didn't meet, but also an affection and orientation which we do not want, glorifying God. So not in the abstract will God be glorified, but in the concrete, in a tomb made empty by a dead man alive, now walking. The resplendent splendor of Jesus will break out for all to see as the crowds later in the passage see and hear him declare, Lazarus, come out, and out comes the dead man living, and they will all break out in worship and glory of the triune God. Much the same way that you see that sunrise or sunset or you break over some vista and your breath is taken away and you pause and you, you tap your friend on the shoulder and say, look, that's what it is to give glory to God, to see him as he truly is. And, and as he truly is, when Lazarus comes forth from this tomb, it's not just a magic trick. It's everybody standing there having their breath taken away putting hands on each other's shoulders, seeing this man walking, and in doing that, giving praise to God. <clears throat> All because Jesus spoke. Lazarus, come forth. A favorite verse of mine is Psalm 29.9. In Psalm 29.9, the psalmist writes, The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare and in his temple all cry glory. Well, the voice of the Lord is about to do something even more amazing than a deer giving birth and stripping forests bare. He's going to bring life out of death. But now we are in a position to see the beauty of the connection. And to begin to, <clears throat> excuse me, chip away at the doubts in our hearts that God doesn't hear, God doesn't care, that Jesus was callous and indifferent and even mean to Martha and Mary for not coming to heal Lazarus. Again, verse 3, so the, Jesus, so the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. <clears throat> but when Jesus heard it, he said, this, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God. So the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And here it is in verse 6. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. This is a nexus point. This is the nexus point. In this passage, Jesus' unique and personal love for his friend is bound up with the glory of God. Which means, for all Christians, Jesus' unique personal love for us is bound up with the glory of God. There together. The Westminster Larger Catechism begins 
with the first question. What is <clears throat> the chief and highest end of man? Answer, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. I do agree with Piper when he changes it by enjoying him forever. That's true. But in this passage, we have a Godward perspective. In this passage, it's about the glory of God, and the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But in this passage, there's a Godward perspective, a top-down, so to speak, where the chief end of the Trinity, the chief end of the triune God, is to glorify himself. Jesus is doing what Jesus is doing on the pages of John 11 so that God might get glory. And this glory from God is bound up with his love for his dear friends. So verse 5 shows that Jesus' love, not just for Lazarus, but also Mary, also Martha, are bound up in God's glory. So these, these pieces of scripture, these, these ideas are beginning to come together to ask that question of why suffering? What are God's eternal cosmic purposes in it? But here you have to see, you cannot speak of God's glory in these instances without also speaking of God's love for his people in these instances. God does get glory in all ways, even in the damnation of sinners. But in this case, we see that the love of God for his people is tied up with God's glory of himself through his people. How? This leads us to our third point. Jesus and the unexpected plan of suffering. Verses 14 and 15. Then Jesus told them plainly. He's talking to the disciples. They haven't left yet. Lazarus has died. And the other shocking statement is verse 15. And for your sake, I am, do you see that word? Glad. Jesus was glad that he was not there to heal Lazarus. And for your sake, verse 15, I am glad that I was not there so that, what's he going to say? You may believe, but let us go to him. So then the question is, is how, what is the glor God glorifying himself in and through his friends and his love for his friends, how does he do this? So the answer is through belief. Here we see the pain and suffering brought uniquely to Lazarus, to Martha, to Mary, to the disciples, because it's for the disciples, it's their friend too, whom Jesus is allowing to die. And Jesus gives the conclusion from our perspective, they're in the middle of verse 15, so that you may believe. And what's interesting is they already believe. So Jesus is tinkering with their faith. He's making it stronger. Lazarus will walk out of the grave at the cry of Christ. 
Lazarus himself will believe that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep and calls them by name, even out of the grave. So will Martha, so will Mary, so will the disciples, so will the crowds. But the crowds who witness this, they are converted. They become believers and followers of Jesus, as we read at the end of the chapter. But for his followers, they already believe. So Jesus is, is seeking roots down deep of faith that weather the storms and more. So the nexus of connections grows. We have the glory of God, God's unique love for his friends, and the friend's belief in God through Christ. You can't pull them apart. God is working for his glory. God is working because of his love for his friends. God is working, the Trinity is working, so that they would believe. Not just for salvation, but also for sanctification, as it were. The nexus grows. The intersection grows. Here in John 11, they are inseparable. Glory, love, friendship, and belief. But the elephant in the room remains. Jesus knew what the Father was going to do by him, through the Spirit, to raise Lazarus. But he didn't tell them yet. He, he, he kind of did in the enigmatic and mysterious Jesus-type way. They didn't get it. No one, no one got it. Jesus knew what he was going to do. So that means then that there's an element where Jesus is, is creating tension in the lives of his friends. In other words, God purposed for his glory that Lazarus would die. Jesus let his friend die because he loved Lazarus. And not only Lazarus, because Jesus, the good shepherd, loved his flock, who he was getting ready to lay his life down for. So Jesus knew, but what was the perspective of everyone else? What was it like to be Lazarus? For those days, weeks, we don't know. How, however long, Lazarus was sick, lying there, feeling awful, we don't know to what degree he was conscious or unconscious, but whatever it was, Lazarus knows and has seen and followed Jesus, multiplying bread, healing people. Lazarus knows what he, his friend, can do. Perhaps he knows that his sister sent for Jesus, and Lazarus knows that his friend is not coming. Jesus has not healed, and maybe Lazarus knows that he's dying. Do you think that that would challenge your faith? It would challenge mine. And it does challenge your faith. It challenges all of our faiths because, because when this happens, our tendency is to always misinterpret suffering and pain as God either not existing at all or being against us. And what John 11 shows is the exact opposite. God is imminently present in the person of his son, and loves us as friends in pain and suffering. And that is the most counterintuitive thing there is next to God himself being triune. 
both Martha and Mary reveal, they do reveal faith later on. If, I don't know if you caught this, but, but when Martha goes to Jesus and then Mary goes to Jesus and then even the crowds watch Jesus, they all say the same thing. Mary and Martha quote each other. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's 100% true. Should Jesus have chosen to heal him? And then even the crowds, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Yes, absolutely. But the elephant is in the room. Lazarus's perspective. Mary and Martha, they do reveal faith, but their faith is challenged to the core. They're clearly broken. They're clearly hurting. They clearly don't understand. They even, in those words, Lord, if you'd been here, that's an implicit but respectful challenge to Jesus. Why didn't you come in a respectful way? And the disciples, they're perplexed. Jesus, you're letting our friend die. Our friend Lazarus, our buddy, we've spent time with, who's served you and worshipped you and done other things. You're letting him die. And the crowds, they, they also doubt. Could not he? So the elephant in the room is this. Jesus ordained the death of Lazarus. That is what verse 4 teaches. It wasn't just a happenstance thing that Jesus said, oh, this is a unique opportunity. I'm going to capitalize on this. It was for the glory of God, orchestrated, intended, and defined. Suffering, pain, hardship, confusion, sorrow are all involved in the whole cast of characters, and that's the elephant in the room. God ordained that this would come to pass, and in his ordination of these events, even the death of Lazarus, he is bringing difficulty, deep difficulty and pain in the lives of these people. Could God have chosen a different plan? We sometimes ask that question. And the answer we should always say to could God have done something else, we always say yes and we always say no. Here's what I mean. Yes, hypothetically, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. But the answer is always no God could do something differently because his mysterious gospel plan is perfect and planned from all time. The death of Lazarus was his perfect plan. And we get to see the fruit of it here because Lazarus does get resurrected. And of course, Lord willing, next week when we see this, we're going to see that not only does this depict our passing from death to life for salvation, but even more so, 1 Corinthians 15, this is going to point towards the promise of the future resurrection for all believers in Christ and the glory that will ensue from that. This is a foretaste, but here, here, the elephant's in the room, that God couldn't do anything else because this was his wise plan of the gospel unfolding to see many people saved alive. The lost brought to life and then the saved to be sanctified and more. This is his plan. So the answer is no, he couldn't do anything else because this is best. And, and, and we do see peeking ahead, there's that um, quote, I don't remember what Puritan said it, but it was something along these lines that it was not until Lazarus was in the grave and they came out that many people believed. And for us, it may not be until you were in the grave that many people end up believing. John 11 makes clear 
There's an elephant in the room, but we misunderstand the elephant. We think God is wrong or bad or whatever. We, we misinterpret his divine gospel plan, which includes suffering, pain, hardship, confusion, and sorrow brought into our lives. It's not that he's against you. It's that he loves you. Now, it may be, if you're an unbeliever, as C.S. Lewis says, this is a megaphone to get your attention for you to repent from your sins, confess Jesus, and believe and follow him, which you must do. But for all of us, God treats us as sons and daughters in suffering. We could turn to many passages to help us understand God's redemptive purpose in using suffering and pain in these counterintuitive ways. We could go to Romans 5, go there later. You could go to James 1, go there later. You could go to Hebrews 12, go there later. We'll go to 1 Peter 1. If you would, join me in 1 Peter 1. I want you to see this in your own Bible. Verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter, who was one of the, the disciples who said, Lord, our friend is sick. Are we going to go so you can heal him? Now Peter's going to help you and me and all of us understand how God uses suffering in the lives of believers. Verse 3 to verse 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ <clears throat> from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who, <clears throat> excuse me, by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, <clears throat> you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, talking about refining, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. <clears throat> Verse 6 there in 1 Peter says, In this you rejoice, all of those intricate glories of the gospel. But verse 6 says, Though now, for a little while, if necessary. Meaning, God ordains it necessary. That they have been, and look at the emotional term there, grieved by various trials. Work backwards. There was very, various trials that grieved them, and it was necessary by God to bring them into their life. Why? So that you would be stronger in faith and a better worshiper of God. 
verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, this is refining faith, not to see if you pass or fail, it purifies and strengthens your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though tested by fire. Here it is. This grieving trials, end of verse 7, may be found to result in praise and glory at the honor and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The pain and suffering and God's all-wise plan that he brings into our lives is so that our faith might be refined and strengthened to improve, so to speak, our worship, to purify our worship, that we might get more joy and give God more glory, so to speak, in our worship. God uses, God ordains the grief of various trials for sanctifying purposes, purifying purposes, removing remaining sin from us, growing us in wisdom and maturity so that our faith might be to the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So John 11 is about glory. John 11 is about love. John 11 is about belief. John 11 is about faith. And John 11 is about suffering. And if God gave all the studied reasons for suffering and more, we wouldn't need that faith to exercise in the first place because we've been given all the answers. Part of the faith is trusting our Father as our Father. So no, Jesus was not callous. No, Jesus was not indifferent. Jesus was not dismissive. He was loving in the utmost counterintuitive way, letting Lazarus be on his deathbed, hurt, and die. Not a sign of evil, a sign of love. And look again at verse 15, back in our text of John 11, verse 15. And for your sake, this is staggering to me. As he looks at the disciples, maybe they questioned. I would have in my own heart. Lazarus is my friend. He's our friend. Jesus is letting him die. And Jesus says to them, for your sake, I am glad. It almost seems audacious if we didn't have all this information from his word. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Jesus' other disposition, in addition to love and friendship, is, is gladness. Jesus' disposition and emotion is gladness. Jesus does weep later on. His emotion is real, and I think this prohibits us from thinking that Jesus was deriving pleasure from hurting him. No, he was not. But but the difference is that Jesus, being the good shepherd, is glad because he knows that the valley of the shadow of death actually has an end. And there's still waters and green pastures on the other side. And that's where he's leading Lazarus. That's where he's leading Martha and Mary. And that's where he's leading you. So know the gladness of Christ in verse 15 is connected to the later half of this statement, so that you may believe. You know, we'll say the ends don't justify the means. You can't use sinful, end, or sinful means to bring glory to God. So it's not wrong, it's not sinful that what, what God is doing here, he is showing love to Lazarus in his most perfect, all-wise way. God was 
glad. God was glad, Father, Son, and Spirit, because people would believe and he would be glorified and they'd be recipients of his love. God has an eternal, all-wise perspective, as this chapter reveals. God is glad to bring people from death to life. God is glad to bring you from darkness to light. God is glad to save. Did you know that? Do you remember Hebrews 12 too? Helping us make sense of what Jesus did on the cross? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What was that joy? His love for his father, his love for his sheep, the atoning salvation he provided. There was joy, there was gladness on the other side of the cross to endure its it's suffering. Jesus' faultless life, he atoned for our sins by carrying them up on the cross for us. Jesus' resurrection from the grave, of which Lazarus' was a prototype, was because there was gladness and joy before him. God has an eternal perspective. And 10,000 years from now, 15 billion years from now, and more, we will be growing in that perspective to make sense of what does not make sense now. So the nexus in John 11 continues to grow. God's love, God's glory, God's gladness on the one hand, and our suffering and our salvation on the other to nothing less than resurrection and life without end. Every day better than the next with the first being perfect. That's what glory is. John 11 helps us see God's heart, hand, and plan in the perplexities of our suffering. We discover that our sufferings and confusions are not meaningless and by random chance, but by the ordination of an exquisite and amazing, mysterious God. Your suffering and, your suffering and perplexities, listen, can only make sense in the hands of the Savior and Father who holds you, John 10. Without him and his ordination of events, there is no sense in suffering and pain. As we come to a close, in 1675, Samuel Rodegast wrote a hymn, Whatever my God ordains is right. Listen to these first and last stanzas. He sings, whatever my God ordains is right, his holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guideth. He is my God, though dark my road. He holds me that I shall not fall, wherefore to him I leave it all. Whatever my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet am I not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him I leave it all. I leave it all. Let's pray. Father, we believe, help our unbelief.
We confess that you, Father, Son, and Spirit, are good and perfectly good and always do right. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one who even can work in sin, not just the sins of others, but our own, to gospel purpose ends, working them all for your good, for our good, to make us into the image of your Son. So, Lord, let us now believe your word preached, that you love us, and that we, our faith would be strengthened to trust you, even in the perplexities of life, knowing that you hold us fast. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I want to invite you to stand to take this next song we sing to reflect on how the Lord has ministered to you in his word. I'll come back up after this song to lead us to the Lord's table.